to Black Bottom Saints with Alice Randall. I'm your host, Alice Randall. Each episode of this podcast will explore the life of a particular saint in the novel Black Bottom Saints, the rich history of Detroit's Black Bottom neighborhood, what the Detroit past has to tell us about the global future, and end with a cocktail recipe. This podcast is for people who have and have not read Black Bottom Saints. Each episode, we'll be talking about the play between history and fiction and how one informs the other. I hope a stop here is a little like meeting up with a talkative stranger in the lobby of Detroit's fabled Gotham Hotel. This week, I want to introduce you to one of the two only saints who probably never entered the doors of the Gotham Hotel, Tallulah Bankhead. Tallulah Bankhead wouldn't have stayed at the Gotham because she was white and hotels were largely segregated during Ziggy's Gotham Hotel heydays in 1948 to 1962. As I said, she's one of only two white saints in the book, the other being Minna Jelk. Tallulah functions very differently in Ziggy's Parthenon than Minna. Minna is presented to anchor the bottom of the list. He is a saint whose redeeming virtue is, reminds us white people make up the majority of criminals in America. Tallulah is present because Ziggy actually loves her. As an artist, as a friend, as a family member, how she functions as a family member to some other Black people. Tallulah and Nuryev are the only white people who Ziggy encourages his girls to watch on television. In honor of the fictional Ziggy's relationship with the fictional Tallulah, I have two guests on this episode of the podcast, Chelsea Crowell and Erin McAnally, and we're going to be discussing white allyship, what it looked like to Ziggy, but opening up that discussion to what it looks like in the world today. But before I introduce them, I want to give you a bit of background on Tallulah. Actually, I will let Mari give it to you and read to you her note that introduces Ziggy's portrait of Tallulah. Tallulah Bankhead, the actress known for her biting tongue and for starring in Hitchcock's Lifeboat, was born into a white Alabama political dynasty. Her father was a congressman, an uncle was a senator, and one grandfather was a Confederate army captain, then later a senator. She was best known in the wide Black world for shouting jeers and curses at Nazis from her ringside seat during the Max Schmeling Joe Lewis fight. She was best known at Ziggy's School of the Theater for being the weird white woman who would look at one boy at tap cast and say to everybody, doesn't he look just like John H. Bankhead too, dipped in chocolate? She looked at another and asked, do you have any people in Jasper, Alabama? When one of the older boys said, not all the Negroes in Detroit have family in Alabama, Tallulah replied, of course not. But that child has my cousin Eugenia's mouth. The men in my family were, for the most part, rapists who preferred the company of dusky women. I would like to know my cousins if they would like to know me. Do you perhaps have any people in Como, Mississippi? That's the end of Mari's introduction. The fictional note was inspired by the historical fact that Tallulah Bank had openly acknowledged that she had Black relations and was interested in meeting them. Ziggy introduces his portrait of Tallulah with the words, I always call Tallulah Bankhead, the lady who knows no color when I write about her in my columns. And that is factual. Ziggy wrote about Tallulah and he always described her with those words, the lady who knows no color. 
Today, I have with me two remarkable women who do see color and work for equity, Chelsea Crowell and Erin McEnany. I invited them because like Tallulah, they're both accomplished artists, songwriters and singers, and like Tallulah, they have negotiated space of being effective white allies. To many and to me, Chelsea and Erin, welcome. Thank you, Alice. Thank you, Alice. It's wonderful to be here with you. It is so wonderful to be with you. As I said in my little opening remarks, Ziggy described Tallulah as the person who didn't see color. He's writing in 67, 68, fictionally. Why is that statement problematic in 2021? I think about that statement a lot, actually, because it's... (sighs) Growing up in the South in music, it was such a ubiquitous thing that people said, like music doesn't see color. Um, if that makes sense, that people would say, you know, we're, we all made music together and and uh, and didn't see color. And I I grew up hearing that um, almost as like an excuse for how music wasn't racist. If if that makes sense, so I think about that a lot because. I sort of absorbed that as a child and as an adult realized how untrue it is and how sort of disturbing it was to think about, you know, especially growing up in Muscle Shoals where people of color who I came to know as an adult were afraid to come, um, where they would wait and do overdubs in New York and Detroit. And so I think that people maybe said that for a long time to make themselves feel better. Um, Mm. But it's certainly... Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't the truth. Yeah. That's the problem. It's a little bit of a lie. Can you jump in there, Chelsea? On well, that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, a, it, I consider it to be a ridiculous statement. I, or thing to say, I understand the implication, you know, going back into the sixties and, and when we're in Ziggy and Tallulah's time, I understand the implication is that um, I'm not judging you based on skin color is sort of the implication of that type of statement. But it's um it's absurd i mean when you don't see the color of someone's skin you are not seeing them in entirety you mm-hmm. are not and it's also impossible um but i think why with your original question why it's problematic right now or or why it's just plain i know i said ridiculous already but it is ridiculous is that um we are not all treated equally so trying to remove the color of someone's skin from their story um, is removing what comes with the color of their skin. And therefore, you're just you're choosing not to see something that's really important. But also, aside from the inequality, you're, you're removing um, really beautiful parts about that person's story, too. So, Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of different angles on why that's just I, I mean, why it just can't work. Well, um, going back to one thing that Aaron said, and I love, Chelsea, that you just said, it just can't work. That's what we know in 2021. Praxis, it doesn't work. Because I think what's so interesting is that a lot of the people who said it in the 60s were thinking that was the road forward, that it was a positive idea. That's why Ziggy's using it, that they think if we don't see color, we won't discriminate against people on the basis of it. And what they're trying to say is, I won't, discriminate against someone on the basis of color. But it one of the things that's so exciting about the Black Bottom Saints world is that it's proudly Black. 
And it's a world that actually sees blackness and treasures blackness. It doesn't not treasure other identities, but it does um, center blackness. And I think that it is so problematic, as you both said, to erase one's color. Mm -hmm. Well, you say center blackness, and that is, I mean, first of all, Black Bottom Saints is just a celebration of that. And um, yeah, it's almost... Um, it's almost insulting in some ways, taking even the racist implication out of it. It's insulting in terms of, I'm not going to acknowledge who you are uh, in a good way. No, right. exactly. Because if you thought black was good, it'd be like saying, I'm not going to notice that you're smart or I'm not right. going to look. Right. And what I love about us being in discussion today is it's an example of a lieship that we have to figure out a way to all get at the table. The black bottom saints world is almost a hermetically sealed all black world, but that doesn't exist in 2021. We are in a global society. If the pandemic has taught us one thing, everybody is our neighbor and we've got to figure out how to get more equity, justice, how to see each other in the identities that we wish to be seen in. Um, The novel presents Tallulah as having the ambition to be what we would call in 2021, a good white ally, succeeding in more moments than she fails, but failing in some moments. Mm -hmm. I want to invite each of you to take a turn of saying, talking about, if you're willing to share with listeners, a single personal experience serving as a white ally that was a solid success or a creaky fail. Either one. And if you want to offer both, happy to hear it. Who wants to go first on that very hard question? You're a good ally to even be willing to answer on this podcast. Aaron, if you don't mind, I'll go first because I know I don't have. Mine is about the failure. And I'm I actually this is something I've thought about a lot, a lot, a lot Um, as a white woman, how important it is to admit our failures for a number of reasons. And I could really go on about that. But instead of going on about that, I'll just say, you know, I, I remember specifically um, when I was 19, going to Panama city beach with some of my girlfriends and going into one of those um, shops and deciding um, what I thought was a kitschy, like trashy thing was a Confederate flag bikini. And um, I was trying to decide between which would be trashier, a Budweiser bikini and a Confederate flag bikini. And I bought and wore on the beach a Confederate flag bikini. I, I, uh, I have partial shame in admitting that, but, you know, I've done some work on this in terms of anti-racism work. Um, I did work on this specific story in an anti-racism workshop on, um, went through this and it, you know, what came out the other side was that I, I realized that how naive and privileged I was to think that it was a joke. You know, I could say the road to hell is paved with good intent. My intentions were just to be funny. And I was 19 and I didn't know any better, but if I'm not willing to admit that story to myself, then I'm not willing or to other people, then I'm not willing to invite other white women to say, I did this. I didn't know any better. I, you know, And some white women don't want to be better and that's their choice. But if there are white women out there that do want to be better, I invite you to admit the time that you bought a Confederate flag bikini because you didn't know that 
it wasn't, you know, because you were so naive and privileged and, um, just, uh, hadn't learned yet. So, um, I, I've, I've thought about that one for a long time, that, that incident, and there's been others. I don't want to go on too long, but I will say the ones that really stick with me, the real mistakes that I have more trouble with are ones where I failed to protect women of color in my life. Um, because I didn't yet know about things like microaggressions and how subtle racism could be. And just to clarify, I want to say, when I say protect, I don't mean infantilize women of color. I just more of like being aware of or recognizing unsafe spaces. Those, those are, those are some of my failures. And, and I, 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 I think that they are worth talking about to open up that conversation. Cause I love a- that example because you were trying to do a critique and that you probably now see that some people on the beach, black women, if they had seen you, they might have not known that it was a critique and they couldn't have worn that. And I want you to know that it's in conversation with one of my very favorite short stories of all time It's called boys go to Jupiter by Danielle Evans. Mm-hmm. And it's about a woman wearing a Confederate flag bathing suit. And I don't know if she heard your story somewhere. <laughs> but it's literally, when I give anti-racist talks, I say that if you could only read one text to inform you, I say, read Boys Go to Jupiter. So I will say that on this podcast. And that's you being a good ally that you've eaten. Well, I mean, listen, my mom, sorry, Aaron and I, but my mom's going to hear about that for the first time listening to this and sorry, I'm very sorry. And I'm sorry, <laughs> listen, actually, I, I want to take this moment to make amends, uh, for, for, for that, uh, violence really. I mean, that's really what it was. Well, mine is a failure as well. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> Just digging in on the failures. Um, Mine, what my moment that sticks out is I went to school in Hawaii and I was uh, in a predominantly uh, in a, in a, a group of people that was predominantly people of color. Um, and most of my friends were people of color uh, on campus. And we went to a show one night, we went to a club to see common play and we were all really excited and we got there and for the entirety of the show there was about a, a three foot radius around me where no one would stand with me and uh it was i was one of the only white people there and uh and there it was it was palpable um that no one wanted to be seen with me which um at the time i you know was confused but enjoyed the show and then we got in the car afterwards and i mentioned it and i said wow, you guys sure, sure ditched me in the room. And they were like, yeah, uh, yeah mm-hmm, we did. And, uh, <laughs> and I was like, I was kind of tipsy, to be honest. And I, and I didn't have a full understanding of this. And I said, well, I, I, I don't really understand that because I didn't do anything. And I had this mm. mentality of, I didn't do anything. What, what does this have to do with me? Mm. And I think about it all the time. I want to kick myself. I really learned a lot over the course of my time in Hawaii. Um, and, and that's multicultural, obviously learned a lot about what it means to be white and in a space like Hawaii, what it means to be white in Southeast Asia and and what it means to be white in, in the United States and particularly in the South. I learned a lot about that there, but I will say, I think I learned 
the most about this from my mother-in-law actually, who's from Mobile. And I th- and though has had no formal anti-racism training, it's something that she thinks about a lot. And, and I think grapples with a lot. And, and aside from this story, this conversation uh, comes up a lot with her and her willingness and not even willingness, but the um, imperative nature of accepting the faults of prior generations and working to repair them and, and really uh, taking on what has been done before us and understanding that in ways that we may not even understand we're carrying that forward if we're not working to repair it. And that's something that I think about a lot. And and I, even though my foot is still way far in my mouth from having that sort of tipsy conversation going, guys, I didn't do anything. Um, And then I I will tell you, they responded with complete silence, which I totally understand. (laughs) There was not a lot of uh, back and forth on that. They were, um, they were just like, shut up, idiot. Um, And you know, I, my foot's in my mouth there, but I am grateful for that experience because that moment of failure has caused me to think a lot and, and to have conversations that maybe I wouldn't have had if I had never had that moment. I think that line, and I, I appreciate your candor and courage of sharing that from your younger tipsy self. I didn't do anything is the line that is behind people who don't understand what white privilege is that they don't understand the being something, not doing something and the, the privileges that come from that. And clearly you are a person who gets that. And it sounds like your mother-in-law is too. And that takes me into what I want to ask about your next question. I'll maybe Erin, you can kick off with this one. Imagine for a moment you were in charge of creating a training school for white girls. This question is for both of you who want to grow up to be effective white allies of Black, Brown, and other Asian women, what would you tell them the three most important jobs of a white ally are? Mm, It's such a great question and such a huge question. Um, It's a huge question. I'll say number one is listening. I did a lot of talking when I was younger. I had a lot of opinions. (laughs) And opinions are important. You see this from young people all the time. They're, they're so forthright with their opinions. And that is so wonderful and such a hugely important thing. But I wish that I had listened more deeply more often when I was young, when I was would, would have been eligible for a, a training school for young white girls. Um, so I, <laughs> I think I think same listen- same. <laughs> I wish that I had been a deeper listener, not a surface listener. Chelsea, do you want to give us number two and then you can try to agree on number three? I'm very, very bad at numbering off, but I can uh, give you a little rattle. Yeah, I love a rattle. Um, I mean, aside from teaching girls about (laughs) white girls, about uh, everything, but no, actually, I will give you a a list. understanding institutional systemic and structural racism i mean we really getting into critical race theory um what but also what implicit biases microaggressions model minority codes code switching uh i'm leaving many tokenism white fragility white privilege just actually learning about these things early on i mean that i didn't learn about until way later so that i could understand First of all, I want to just stop and say, I think that is so amazing. You guys have given me these three amazing things that you've just said 
Chelsea, get some vocabulary. Yes. And you've talked about some important words, code switching. You've talked about and get some theory, critical race theory. And then Aaron, what you said to begin was listen. So one is about the way you listen and another was about the way you talk and think. I think I, you all should write a book, some kind of I, young I, adult I have, book. I'm sorry to cut you off, but I have one actually uh, important one that I wrote down in my notebook. I um, Absolutely. When I was uh, thinking about, this was a few weeks ago, actually, this has been something that's come up over and over and over again. I am the million, 10 millionth person to say this, but um, also teaching them to do the work. Uh, we have to stop relying on black women and men to educate white women and men about racism the same way. You know, I like I liken it to when um, I've done Planned Parenthood fundraisers or anything like that. And we're talking about people to play the shows. It always goes back to women, you know, was it women raising money for Planned Parenthood? And it's like, wait a minute, why are there no male bands getting up there and doing the work, too? It is not the same thing at all, but but the, it is there has been a lot on the shoulders of black women, especially and black men to teach white people about racism when the information is actually out there. So I would encourage these in this fictitious school you speak of to learn all of these things, get this vocabulary, get the history so that they can teach other white people about it, too. That's a really great point. I, I was going to say um, reading is a huge, huge part of it for me, for, for what I've learned is is digging in. And mostly um, prior to knowing Alice so well, mostly I was reading nonfiction, um, but have learned from Alice the importance of fiction in in the building of knowledge and empathy uh, about this subject. Um, you already started to touch on this one, but what are some of the warning signs someone is not being a good ally? <laughs> Chelsea, it sounds like if you're not doing the work and trying to make your black friends do it is one of the warning signs, but what are some of the other wa- warning signs? I actually, I have, I have a, uh, my answer to this is not going to be helpful at all because I feel like performative allyism is like a big buzz, you know, word. It's a real thing, but it's also something that people love to call each other out on. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's completely valid. And sometimes it's a way to really go after somebody, especially from one white woman to another. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like going for the jugular in some ways, uh, especially on social media and blah, blah, blah. But um, I think that... <laughs> When it's really obvious, I notice it. But otherwise, if I get into the crosshairs of judging other white people and their allies, then I'm probably not keeping myself accountable. Mm. Mm. That's an interesting that. So one of the warning signs you're not being a good ally is that what you're doing is if I'm judging other other, (laughs) like you're calling out other allies. Um, Aaron, what would you what what are some of the warning signs that you've noticed that someone's not being a good ally? Um, the denial of implicit bias, I think when it's kind of going back to what we were saying earlier, not seeing color, if the, the denial that color exists, that racism exists, that, um, we're living in the reality we're actually living in that, that it's like, it is a microaggression almost to, to Mm -hmm. deny implicit bias. And I think there's a lot of people who consider themselves white allies who, deny that in themselves because they've done some level of work in the arena 
uh, if that makes sense. And yeah. I would say, I would say, because I know this from personal experience of not being a, a great ally in the past uh, is talking too much. <laughs> so- I, mean, I will say that one of the things that I appreciate as a black woman is white women that I feel close enough to that I can intimately discuss and parse out certain issues about race or certain bruises around it. And that, and I don't want them to be my therapist and only listen. I, I actually appreciate the engaged conversation where you can sort things out and get a sense of that intimacy. Certainly. Yes. I don't, I don't mean uh, that a good ally is a silent ally. I, I certainly don't mean to imply that. Um, no, no, but I, I privilege it. And we know that you give me many much, much more time to talk in the conversations, which I also love taking but in a good way that, um, but I think there's that balance because I don't think, uh, actually, I oddly think that some of the people who, when I see, I don't call people out about performative allyship, but when the two things I experience the most of when I think I'm experiencing that are people who literally call me out of the blue and tell me about some race-based problem they had, that they're not my close friend white people. And they want me to explain what the black person who was saying that just told them that they were being really racist. Wait, problems. just to clarify, a white person would call you and explain. Frequently. They, the white people, I will get a call in the morning and say, uh, Alice, my housekeeper just said that I was being racist <laughs> to her and tell me this long story. Why do you think she said that? I think it's so terrible. I'm so nice to her. Okay. And- so that goes back to what I was saying or before about in terms of relying on black women to educate white women about racism. Exactly. And so that's why I noticed that one. And the other one, and I just noticed that you both are people I have good conversations are, they're people who are afraid to say something wrong. So they won't say anything. They will only, that are, that are, that I am close to it. I'm trying to talk about, sort out something related to um, race. And if they won't dare to say anything because they're fearing saying the wrong thing, like at Uh, least- Aaron and you both know that I'm definitely not afraid to say anything wrong because I do it all the time. <laughs> and, and I love, it was very interesting and I can't talk about the details, but Aaron and I once were having a conversation and I have even more conversations with Chelsea over, feels like over a decade now. We were talking about something and I was seeing it, you know, in, along some black lines about not honoring this larger thing in the life of the world, political world. And she was seeing really concerned about trying to be an ally for some Hispanic communities and Latinx um, speakers. And I've just used those two titles wrong. But what was so exciting, us talking about it, we realized the solution that the people involved was that they should find a brown Spanish speaking person <laughs> that they could, that there was an intersectionality that they were excluding that they hadn't. And I love that we had this hard conversation where I felt like the, in this pers- particular place, that the needs of the African-American community weren't being looked at. And she was seeing very important ways where the needs of the Latinx community, and we were not realizing to get, until we worked it all out, that what the people who had created the problem weren't seeing mm was that there was a a way to actually address both communities and actually the largest majority of the Spanish-speaking population in the place where we were talking about was in fact brown and black. And so it was addressing, but but the people we were dealing with were dealing with them as two different categories and mainly only dealing with white Spanish-speaking people. And so it was so interesting that a good, hard conversation where we were both in it, we came up to a new solution. Um, Absolutely. Now, speaking of 
those things. This question is for, I, the next question is for Chelsea. And then I have one for you, Aaron. One of the things that Tulula does, according to Ziggy, is recognize her Black relations, her, her literal Black family members. Um, Chelsea, I think you've had some recent experience with an opportunity to do that in a very complex way that I think that you've negotiated very well. Could you, that recognizing that you, you, you are a white woman, you've been raised as a white woman, but there's now some complexities in that. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, for anybody listening that doesn't know, there's plenty of information on this out there. Um, on my mother's side of the family, uh, my my grandmother dating back to, oh boy, don't have the tree in front of me right now, but uh, there was there was both enslaved Black people in my family tree and um, people who enslaved. And there was sort of this um, well, there was a, a marriage and, um, at some point around Jim Crow era, the, um, my ancestors on that side of my family, um, started marking off at the time it would have been M for mulatto and they changed it to W for white, I believe, uh, around, well, it was Jim Crow era. So, um, so, and they were passing enough at that time because they had also, um, there was also Sicilians that had married in and, um, some Italian looking. So anyway, that's to bring up to date anybody not uh, familiar with that story on that side of my family, which would be the Liberto and, and my mom's side. Um, I very much am freckled and blue eyed white, and I have lived the experience of a white woman. There's just, and I cannot claim any information of that ancestry other than to acknowledge it and hold it in reverence. Alice, your daughter, um, Caroline, she's not here right now, so I'm not going to quote her or put words um, in her mouth, but I had a conversation with her that changed, honestly changed my life. I was very close with my grandfather and um, I respected him and he influenced a lot of my activism. He was an activist and he was a you know, a lot of his social justice and activism influenced how I behave and what I learned to become. And I always took issue with one specific thing that, that always, always nagged at me in the back of my head, which is this story um, where uh, the KKK is coming after my grandmother, Vivian. She, uh, my, she was terrified. She was getting lots of death threats and he was getting banned from venues for marrying a black woman. He wrote letters to these venues saying she's not a black woman. She's a white woman. I always felt so disappointed in him for that. I always wanted him to have, you know, the man that I knew would have given all of those venues the finger and said, it doesn't matter, you know, whatever. And it was in conversation with your daughter, Alice, that she opened my eyes really. And um, she resolved that nagging thing that I've been carrying around for so long. And again, I'm not going to put words in her mouth, but she basically led me to understand that in the 1950s, when this would have been taking place, it was not the world we're living in now. You had to actually protect whether she was black, white, 
I mean, they thought she was black, whether she was or wasn't. And he had a job to protect her. And it's like, it just gave me another layer of my white privilege to look at that. I was able to look at it through a lens of just stick up, you know, like that I was able to look at it through a lens of, of non self-preservation of non um, survivalism that he would have imperiled her life that because she was white and my, and my aunts and my, and my mom. And I, 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 I just, that, that conversation with your daughter, with Caroline, it, it truly, not only did it resolve something for me emotionally with my grandfather, that's always been on my heart and mind, but now I understand him on a deeper level. And I understand my grandmother on a deeper level in that situation that I was born in a, in a time where I grew up thinking, oh, the civil rights movement happened and it's all over and I can buy a Confederate flag bikini because racism has been solved. You know, I mean, that obviously didn't last very long. That was when I, a short period of time that I (laughs) wasn't complete and total idiot. But, you know, my belief that you could just stick it to the man during a period of time where you would have been killed Mm -hmm. is such privilege on my part. And I just... I'll end this by saying I have so much gratitude for your daughter for um, leading me to that understanding. It's it's it is it's changed a lot for me. You might not have been born if he had handled it a different way. True. Tallulah inhabits, as we all do, multiple identities. Allyship is just one of them. She's also an artist in her own right, an actor. And you're both songwriters and singers, as well as producers and podcast producers. Can you talk for a moment about the ways your identity as an artist can support your identity as an ally? Yes. This is all (laughs) you, Erin. I'm too shady for this one. (laughs) Well, I I think I, I don't know how to view that through music because I'm a um, even though I'm 40, I'm sort of a baby musician. Um, so, so music aside, I think through writing and through the work that I do and the, the work that Chelsea and I do together, I think it's very important to, not in a performative way, but make sure that there are diverse seats at every table that we're invited to as well. And when I say that, Alice speaking back to what we were just talking about with intersectionality um there's so much that goes into that when we're particularly with our work that we do with the artist rights alliance you know we're very careful to make sure that there are multiple generations involved in every conversation that we have because the needs of different generations are different and the perspectives of different generations are so important. We also try to ensure that um, people of different cultural and ethnic backgrounds are present in all conversations like that because as we know, you know, spanning politics and art and all over the place, um, there there is a lot of performance going on when it comes to public presentations, public panels, you know, those kinds of things. And, and while that's important, we want to make sure that the representation goes all the way to when these conversations are happening, um, that will change policy that will affect, uh, how organizations are run, um, that it's actually a really, uh, deep and meaningful conversation that comes from 
so many perspectives. So that really, I mean, not to speak for Chelsea, but that is a huge part of the reason why we do what we do, because we have seen so many organizations have these sort of performative conversations. And then the backroom deals are all done with a bunch of white dudes. Mm -hmm. And, and that can, that continues to happen even, even with the massive reckoning that has, has gone on in the past few years, we see that happening all the time. And so that's sort of, I think that that's my, my biggest calling as a quote unquote ally, which makes me nervous to even say that out loud, but my, my biggest calling, my biggest sort of goal is to ensure that those conversations don't just happen in public. And then the private conversations are what affects policy. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to say right here about both of you, because this question has me almost feeling in a good way, tearful. One, you are both artists uh, and you know, that you both now, Chelsea has done one of my favorite albums of all time and has been writing songs for a long, long time. But Erin, you write in other ways, but you also have emerged in recent years, important songwriter. Um, and you both were raised in the music community and part of music business. And when I feel that one specific, just individual private way, you've been such an ally for me is two different things. One is bringing me into new media. I am in my 60s. Uh, I have many young friends, but none of them put me on their shoulders and took me into the world of Instagram and Twitter and (laughs) podcasts. I would not be doing a podcast. I don't understand podcasts. You first invited me onto one that you all were hosting, and then you have produced and truly womaned this podcast into the world. And so I think that, um, but on the other side, when I didn't even know that some of my songs were being streamed, you turned around and showed me that I had tens of millions of streams of some songs and then are helping me figure out how do I get paid? That's all Aaron, by the way. I cannot take any credit for that. But together you guys helped me figure that, but I wouldn't even know that. I mean, literally if I didn't have those ongoing conversations. So I think that your ongoing arts that you're involved with and art conversations and art communities I feel that particularly in the cyber and uh, Chelsea, you've been an equal leader on this of helping me learn this other language or harder work still translating for me when it's been too hard for me to learn the language Mm -hmm. that part of my exhaustion, I've been a black woman supporting being active as an activist in a lot of different arenas. Mm -hmm. And I have been too tired to learn Instagram in a time of COVID (laughs) and in you know, with George Floyd, George is my father's name. He, his death was visceral to me. It's not my death, but it was viscerally felt to me like it was by so many people. I could not learn yet another thing podcasting in this, but this work from this other decades of Black brilliance, it wouldn't be touching other people. Ziggy, Billy Eckstein, Tallulah Bankhead, without your work of translating me sometimes day by day, week by week into these grammars I haven't been able to um, absorb, it wouldn't exist. And I want to put you both forward when people think of being white allies. Think about doing those private things. You all rarely let me even tell people of all the things you do. The podcast is one of the few things that you even take any public note of. But you guys have been running my Instagram for free for two years. That is really in the trenches allyship. And it allows me to give my students more. 
Um, and I want to pay that forward. And I think that one of the signs that I like to see is if you have to ask yourself in your heart, how much of the allyship you do, you do it for the public, how much of it you really rest on doing it behind the scenes. And only when the black person that you're allied with, who they want to talk about it and say, yes, yes, she did this for me. They showed up for me. Um, that it gets told because you clearly aren't doing it for the telling. And I'm sure you're both really mad at me for even saying this. <laughs> well, really, really appreciative of you saying that certainly. And, but I mean, the amount that we learn from you is greater than the sum of those parts. And um, I, I really, it's an honor to be involved. Um, I want to say that I uh, just give a shout out to the East West Center in Hawaii, Erin, that you had that wonderful conference and you use it to opportunity to spotlight Laverne Baker's work. Uh, Chelsea did an amazing job, both of you, of putting together this thing at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and putting me in our conversation, Chelsea, with your own mother and some amazing other people to spotlight Laverne Baker, the second Black woman to go into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So it keeps on going. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to end on a big, hard question. I want to leave a little bit of time for this. I love it. <laughs> Sticking with this theme of multiple identities for a moment. Tallulah experienced slut shaming with people talking negatively about her relation in relation to venereal disease and her sexuality. One of her triumphs is that she is powerfully shameless, proud of her own complexity, proud of her sexuality, committed to all of her authentic selves. Do you consider yourself to be shameless women? I think of you as both in a very good way, shameless women. And if you do, what has been most helpful in your walk to that? Or if you don't, I know you're walking towards it. What's the most helpful in your walk towards that? I love both of you to take a time to talk about. I think shame is a tool of control uh, held by the shameless. Um, I think <laughs> I, re- I really do. I mean, I, I, think, I think shame is really harmful. Um, and I think a lot, I think we continually see the people at the top of organizations of politics all uh, don't have shame. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they use shame to control other people to put yeah. a fine point on it. And I, and I, I have had deep shame growing up. It was part of the culture of, of where I grew up. I went to Catholic school and I, I loved Catholic school because I want, I, I thought shame was great. <laughs> I thought it was so cool. Um, I think I like romanticized it or something. Um, but the older I get, the more I sh- have shaken shame. Uh, part of that has been through writing for me and, mm-hmm. and publicly saying things that I are saying, you know, saying things in written word or saying things like on this podcast that I did that I felt ashamed of in the past. I have taken power back by shaking that shame. And I also have really tried to, in any leadership role that I have been able to step into, eradicate shame as a a tool or an emotion that rules the way that an organization works because it's so deeply damaging to the individuals that are experiencing it. So excuse my French, but fuck shame. (laughs) I think the title of the song you need to write is Shake the Shame or Shake Shame. I like that. Yeah. Chelsea, come in on here. I know you've got something important to say. I do. I actually, I kind of teared up listening to Aaron talk about that and going through my own. um, I mean, I had a couple of things come up. You know, my, I've, I'll keep this part short. I have a very odd relationship with shame because I have too many damn famous people in my family. So I grew up with a lot of um, like, Oh, you know, 
I, I'm not worth anything. This person's only talking to me because I'm related to so-and-so and, you know, trying to figure myself out that way and sort of just being shy and shameful and, and hiding myself in a lot of ways. Um, I grew out of that. And I, similar to what Aaron said before, I just fundamentally do not believe in purity <laughs> I, it's a, a good thing because it doesn't really exist right <laughs> well I don't believe in it, it uh, in like a molecular level I don't believe in wholesome goodness and purity now there are aspects absolutely love you know on all of that kind and 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 kindness and and joy but purity it, it's this purity is where shame comes in. And here's what I'll say. I, you know, this is a funny question to ask me right now, because we're talking about what's been said about Tallulah, you know, Bankhead and, and what was talked about her. And um, most days I consider myself shameless about who I am in a proud way. Um, and what I've done wrong, I've literally gotten on here and talked about really shameful things that I did, like the Confederate flag bikini. And I think it's important to talk about those things. You know, you're, you're only as sick as your secrets and talk about what I've done right. Maybe sometimes, um, you know, but I'm also human. I recently got an earful about myself, really mean gossip that I found, you know, it found its way back to me and I felt shame and judgment and doubt. And I felt sad, but I think how I truly shoulder judgment, I'm more shameless than not. You know, I I can't say I'm I'm a whole 100% shameless, but what I said, Alice, you and I have talked about this. What other people think about me is none of my effing business. I am a pro-sex worker, attempted ally, radical wannabe Marxist feminist. And what I'm most shameless about is how much I fail at my mm. ideals. I break up with capitalism every morning and somehow Amazon has a better deal that night. It's like, I, you know, I, I just think being, being shameless is being shameless. I mean, being shameless is being honest. And mm -hmm. somebody, if well, there's one person that listens to this and says, I can't effing believe Chelsea bought a Confederate flag bikini, you know, or something like that. I hope that it also makes somebody else be like, I want to admit that I did this thing too. So anyway, that's, that's my idea about being shameless is that you just allow yourself to be out there enough for people to be either real mad about it or, or find some sort of um, joy and relationship in it. I think, I think that's a really good point. It's one thing to feel shame. It's another to not act out of fear of shame. Right. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'm, I was nervous about having this conversation. I still feel nervous about it. You know, saying something stupid um, is something that I fear, but it doesn't stop me from having the conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think it's about aggregate wonderful that you have to look at the aggregate. We are very complicated people. And I love that. This is one, I love the stories of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And there was a quote I was always thinking about when I was a little girl. My father, I think, told me this. You know, there never arose in Israel a man likened to Moses, who the Lord God knew face to first, face. But Moses never made it into the promised land. Moses killed somebody. Moses was not perfect. And he mm -hmm. was supposedly big. You're not, get over, like, get over. Yeah. Moses wasn't perfect. You're not going to be either. But it doesn't mean we don't strive to those connections, to the love, to manifest the things that we most joyfully. I want to say, Chelsea and Aaron, this has been a wonderful, an aggregate, wonderful Ziggy and Tallulah worthy conversation. Ziggy and Tallulah were not perfect people, but they were wonderful people. 
and they fell short and we fell short. But we're going to celebrate loving and continuing to live and trying to be allies and trying to not get stopped by the small stumbles. To celebrate this conversation, I'm going to be mixing up libation for the Feast of Tallulah Baghead. And I invite you to do that, too. Alice, I have to. I have to because I don't ever get the chance to to, um, brag on you for a second. So may I? Please. Since I have the mic in this one, I'm usually. Although this is about you too, but yes, of course. I want, I get, I'll get the opportunity. And so I'm going to use it. Um, I want to say thank you to you because you've been so patient with me as a friend over the years. And you've taught me so much over the years. And, but in working on Black Bottom Saints in this podcast, I have had an opportunity that I wouldn't have otherwise had. And you've, you've really opened up a whole world for me. And, um, in a lot of ways in this last year and a half, or since the book came out, um, it's been, it's been life-changing in a lot of ways in internally. And I just love you. I love you as a person. I love you as a friend. I admire you as a writer and I, I love being able to work on these projects and I just thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I love you, actually. And I appreciate that. And I have and I appreciate that you shared your friend, your lifelong friend, Erin, with me. And I've gotten to come to love her, too. And so and we have some Alabama connections. So on that, we are going to be lifting a spider's web, which is two jiggers of bourbon, chocolate syrup in a squeeze bottle with a fine tip. You fill a wide coupe glass with very young bourbon, then drizzle a circle within a circle, within a circle, within a circle. You need all of those on top with chocolate syrup. Use a toothpick, draw a straight line from a point on the smallest circle to just beyond a point on the outside of the largest circle. Do this at 12 o'clock and at five other points on the circle, evenly distributed to construct a chocolate spider's web. I'm going to try to show that to you so that we can see. Maybe we'll have that on Instagram. Coming up soon, we'll be talking about the brilliant Billy Eckstein and the movable feast of Thanksgiving. Until then, keep zagging with Ziggy and always remember, joy is radical. Allies are important. I am Alice Randall, and this is Black Bottom Saints Podcast. This podcast was produced by Chelsea Crowell and Aaron McNally. The theme from Black Bottom Saints was written and recorded by Lewis York. Nashville Women Blues was recorded by Reese Palmer and written by Bessie Smith. The novel Black Bottom Saints is published by Amistad, HarperCollins, and is available at your favorite bookstore and on Audible. Find out more at alicerandall.com.